Welcome to the very first episode of the Chameleons podcast. In this episode, which was recorded all the way back in February in New York, I met with Dr. Mark Jackson, Senior Quantum Evangelist at Quantinium. A lot of things can happen in the world of tech and quantum computing over a span of three to four months. As you will learn in this episode, error correction is a major concern in quantum computing. And recently, Quantinium researchers and colleagues might just have made a pivotal step towards fault-tolerant quantum computing. I should also mention that this journey started out as a do-it-yourself project, guided by my perception of how little I knew about the history, underpinnings, implications, and potential of major advances in tech. But since I knew so little, I reckon that many other people are probably in the same boat. And technology is simply moving too quickly for all of us to stay in this particular boat. So I decided to address this situation. I'm grateful for this introduction to quantum physics, quantum computing, and its implications by Dr. Jackson. This conversation inspired me to continue the quest for acquiring a deeper understanding of the intellectual, creative, technical, educational, and practical realities of quantum computing. Sometimes one may wish to return to the past with the knowledge one has today. I do not, though, because this interview is now part of my epistemic journey and my mission to better understand how I can best contribute to our collective capacity for building the future. I am Imak Sambrana, and this is The Chameleon's Podcast. This is the first interview on the Chameleons podcast series, and with us today is our first guest, Dr. Mark Jackson. Mark is a senior quantum evangelist at Quantinum, a company whose mission is to accelerate quantum computing across sectors such as drug discovery, healthcare, material science, cybersecurity, energy transformation, and climate change. As the senior quantum evangelist at Quantinium, his job is to create awareness and understanding about quantum computing and its potential. So the plan today is to have a conversation about the historical backdrop of quantum computing, how quantum computers are applied today, as well as the transformative potential of quantum in the near and far future. So I'm very grateful and honored that you took the time to sit down with me, Mark. So thank you. It's my pleasure, Imak. Thank you so much for, for having me on your podcast, and I'm really honored to be the first guest that you have as well. So one thing about you I find fascinating is that you initially had a very academic career path uh, with a PhD in theoretical physics from Columbia University and then a background in mathematical modeling and computational physics, uh, spending a decade or so on researching superstring cosmology theories. And then suddenly you make uh, what appears to be a significant shift to promote uh, the promises of quantum computing to stakeholders and tech-based industries. What caused this seemingly change of direction for you? Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so everything you said is exactly right. Uh, I was focused on super string theory and cosmology for many years. I had several postdocs and loved doing that for, for quite a while. But 
as the years went by, I became a little bit frustrated with um, first, just academic job prospects weren't ideal, and and it's very frustrating um, how few job opportunities there are for permanent positions. And second, something unique to string theory is that we still don't know whether it's correct or not. It's mathematically very beautiful. It's it's a quantum theory of gravity, but we have no experimental evidence that it's correct or incorrect. And so it's a little frustrating every day to to work on something which is beautiful but could just turn out to be false. Mm-hmm. And so um, so after several years of working on this, I I just decided I, I still loved science, but I was going to find something else to do. And so I started this company called Fiat Physica, which did science uh, fundraising. Kickstarter had just come out and was very popular, and so it was sort of a Kickstarter for physics type model. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed doing it, and we had a lot of success. We, we got several projects funded, but it wasn't financially feasible. I couldn't live off this. And so after about two and a half years, I unfortunately had to close that. And, uh, and I moved to California and looked for a real job again. <laughs> and I was, uh, I was hired as faculty, ironically enough, um, at a, a Silicon Valley think tank called Singularity University. And this was in 2016. And it was then that I started hearing about quantum computing, which was just starting to be commercialized. So I was vaguely aware of it for, for a while, but, it, but um, around 2016, I started hearing that there had been some breakthroughs, which led people to think that this actually might be feasible, that, that businesses could start building it and, and companies could take advantage of this. And so I, I was really excited and I was giving lectures about this as part of my job at Singularity, but I... I kind of felt like a cheerleader on the sidelines. I didn't want to just be lecturing about it. I wanted to be doing it. Mm. And I was very lucky that a uh, a friend of mine, Ed Frankel, a math professor at Berkeley, he uh, made an introduction to Ilias Khan, the founder and CEO of what was then called Cambridge Quantum Computing, which was a small British startup um, in in the UK um, focused on developing software for quantum computers. And, uh, and so I was very lucky that I was the first American hired in this company. And this, so this was fall of 2017. And so, uh, yeah, this was, this was really the, the beginning of the commercial era of quantum computing. And so that's how I got into the story. Yeah. And it's pretty recent. It's, that's, I didn't know it was that recent. It, yeah, that was only five and a half years ago. And, and it now, when I think about all the things that have happened in that time, it, it seems like another lifetime ago. Um, I remember when I told some physics friends that I was g- getting into quantum computing, they laughed and thought that I was I was just throwing my life away on nonsense. And that it was about two years in that that changed substantially. There there were certain developments um, like Google had this um, this development called quantum supremacy, where they found an example of a problem that a quantum computer could solve that a normal computer couldn't. Hmm. And so this made people really sit up and pay attention. And I, and I noticed that it, like at, at first, when I joined, we had great difficulty getting companies to sit down with us um, and, and have us explain how quantum computing could help their industry. Because hmm. the perception was that quantum computing was still fantasy, that if it were to happen, it was still decades away. And so it was of no relevance to them. Hmm. And I noticed it was about two years in that that really changed. You the companies... Why? Yeah, c- companies realized this was a real thing, mm. and and that this this wasn't decades away. This was maybe a few years away, but they should be paying attention to this. And so, 
now um, it, it's it's just a completely different world. Um, there are many companies who are not only talking about it, but actually doing projects in quantum computing. Hmm. So when you work and you travel around the globe, do you visit companies and actually meet with them and and uh, and provide guidance as to how to get into quantum computing? And, or yes, like, exa- exactly. Um, or would you? How would you advise them? Yeah. Well, actually, first, let me take a step back um, mm. because you mentioned my title as mm. quantum evangelist. Yes. So, um, in, which I have a really hard time pronouncing. <laughs> it's 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 a little bit funny um, because evangelism um, sometimes has, has a religious connotation, but in Greek, it simply means bringer of the good news. Mm. And so that's how it was first introduced in, in like the New Testament. But in the tech world, this is a very standard term. And it was introduced in the in the early 90s at Apple Computer because they wanted to create excitement about the Macintosh. Mm. They wanted um, developers to write programs. They wanted people to, to uh, use it. And so they wanted to make a distinction between this and sales because it's, it wasn't about trying to sell people necessarily. It was just getting them excited about the Macintosh or and, and developing for it. Right. And so um, it was about two years ago, I was I was given this role of evangelist. And, and that's very appropriate because it's really just about creating excitement about quantum computing and about what we do at Quantinuum now. Um, I, I um, should probably mention that about a year ago, Cambridge Quantum merged with Honeywell Quantum Solutions to form this new company called Quantinuum. Mm. which does both software and hardware in the quantum sector. Oh, okay. So they actually make the machines. So we actually make the machines now, yeah. So Cambridge Quantum was focused on software, and we had partnerships with all the the major quantum hardware groups. Mm. And the partnership with Honeywell Quantum Solutions went so well that we merged about a year ago. And so we formed a new company called Quantinuum. Oh, and that's situated in in England still, or it's, in the UK. It's it's actually American. Oh, um, yeah. So Honeywell, being American, um, the quantum group was based in Broomfield, Colorado, mm. near Denver, and so we actually make our own computers now. And it's it's an American company, and so we're at, we have about five hundred employees now. Wow, making us the largest quantum company in the world. Wow. So even even though there are the corporations doing quantum, the quantum groups are not this large. Right. So we're actually the largest pure quantum group in the world. Wow. And uh, yeah, we have hardware and software. These machines look just enormous. They, like, yeah, like, so... Like, when you make them, mm-hmm. do you need a lot of space? Is this you, a, you, you do. Just imagine this you, is you a, do. Yeah. So right now it's very experimental. Um, it, it sort of brings to mind... Like in the, in the 50s and 60s, um, those big mainframes which required a whole room and the engineers were in there with screwdrivers and the wires were hanging out and things like that. That's still what it looks like, actually. Um, There are several different technologies that can be used to build quantum computers. Mm. And you might have seen um, like these chandeliers. Mm. Um, So that's one particular technology called superconducting, Mm. where the the quantum part of it, it's, it's actually just a little chip at the very bottom of the chandelier. It has to be kept very, very cold because it has some materials which have special properties at almost absolute zero. And uh, at Quantinuum, we use another technology called ion trap technology, where we have charged particles called ions, which are manipulated using lasers. And so um, so every charged particle, every ion, is a qubit or a quantum bit, so the basic ingredient mm. in a quantum computer. 
and um, and there's there are several other technologies that are being researched. Every technology has advantages and disadvantages. There's no obvious winner yet, and it will probably turn out that there are several different winners. Like mm-hmm. some types of problems are better suited for one platform, and other types of problems are better suited for another technology. Right. So these different technologies could solve different kinds of questions or uh, problems. Precisely. Exactly. So we we jumped a little, but could you? Perhaps let's explain a bit the main difference between more traditional computing and and a classical computer and quantum computer uh, just just to get a basic foundation. Sure. And then, because I'm really wondering about, um, so I only seen this chandelier kind of computer, but I haven't seen any others. So I would love to know like more about the differences between sure. that one and others. Yeah. Sure. So so mm. to, to answer your first mm. question, um, what is the difference between classical computing and yeah. quantum computing? So classical computing is based on bits, right? Zeros and ones. And so everything on a normal computer, um, at the most fundamental level, are zeros and ones. Even if it's high resolution video or something, it's all zeros and ones. But a quantum computer uses a quantum bit or a qubit we call it and a qubit can be a zero and a one at the same time and and i know that that seems kind of odd but um, i sometimes think of it like if you have a coin a coin on a table is either heads or tails right it's it's one or the other and so that's like a a bit but a coin spinning in space is like a qubit because it could pick any orientation it might happen to be heads or tails but it's free to orient in any other way and so that's that's like a qubit. You can think of it as being heads and tails at the same time, or in this case, a zero and one at the same time. And then the other quantum property that we take advantage of, called entanglement, is is the fact that one qubit can be correlated with another qubit. And this is this is a purely quantum physics effect. There's no explanation from classical physics. And so when you combine this idea of superposition, which is the technical name for the fact that it's it can be zero and one at the same time. Mm. And entanglement, it means that several qubits can represent several different configurations at the same time, all simultaneously. And so what a quantum computer does is it cleverly arranges these qubits such that every possible solution to some problem is considered, the correct answer emerges, and the wrong answers go away. Mm. So you might think of it sort of like noise-canceling headphones, so the way that those work is that the, the ambient noise that you don't want to hear, the headphones create the opposite of that. So it mm. cancels out the ambient noise that you want to, mm. to, to disregard. And then it amplifies the sound that you do want to hear, like the, the music or what have you. And so it's, it's a bit like that with a quantum computer is that all the solutions are there. The correct answer is reinforced and the wrong answers are diminished. Mm. And so that's what quantum programming is, is yeah. that you're you're trying to arrange the qubits mm. to do this. And it's completely counterintuitive from normal programming. Mm. No, normal programming is actually pretty simple compared to quantum programming because you're actually programming using quantum physics. Mm. And so um, so yeah, so that's that's the big difference. Mm. And we still and then we can hear, like, yeah. this is New York. Yeah, this is New York City, <laughs> where, where, uh, where we have ambulances and, and sirens yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so, <laughs> um, um, so we're still learning a lot about how quantum computers work because quantum algorithms, the way that we solve problems using quantum computing, we still don't know a lot about it. Um, we only have a very small number of quantum algorithms. 
Um, so, so one of them, which has received a lot of attention, is the fact that quantum computers can factor numbers very quickly. Mm. And you might ask, why in God's name would you ever want to factor numbers? Why would that be mm. interesting? Um, other than curiosity as a math problem, why would that be mm. um, of interest to anyone? It's because a lot of cryptography is based on right. factoring numbers. And so, so this has a lot of security mm. experts concerned because mm. if a quantum computer could do that, that means that most types of online security would be defeated. Right. So in a way, it's about identifying the problems that uh, quantum com um, computing can address with the algorithms that you actually know of Ex exactly. now, but also developing new algorithms uh, or understanding like what kind of algorithms you could apply for other problems. Precisely, yeah. So yeah. We, we hope to have a library of different quantum algorithms that we can apply for different applications. Mm -hmm. and, and so we have a very small number. Um, it's unfortunately small. That's a, that's a big problem in our field is that, is that we have so few. Um, one thing that we, we do think quantum computing can do very well is do chemistry simulations. So, so modeling a, a molecule, figuring out the properties of a molecule. We've known for 100 years what the equations are, so there's no mystery in that. And we can put it on a normal computer and, and tell it, solve these equations and figure out the properties of the molecule. But the problem is that as a molecule gets bigger, there are so many equations that the computer needs to solve that it becomes almost impossible. Even, even a supercomputer would have a lot of difficulty solving that many equations to figure out the properties of a molecule. And so this is one of the, the big applications we think of quantum computing is that it could very efficiently figure out the properties of large molecules. Right. And so that could be used for pharmaceutical purposes right. like developing drugs yeah. or for material science like developing stronger steel or uh, um, extracting carbon from the environment yeah. or um, you know, in, in better batteries, anything yeah. like that. You're saying could, so have you... Has this work started already? It, it has like, started, yeah. yeah. So, so we've already done proof of concept type projects mm -hmm. where, where we can do small molecules and we can calculate certain things. Mm -hmm. So, so it, simple versions do mm -hmm. work. Um, right now, today, we aren't able to do any calculations which have commercial value. Mm -hmm. and, and we're very honest with this. Um, mm -hmm. If someone tells you otherwise, they're, they're misleading you. So, so today, there's nothing that a quantum computer can do which has commercial applications. But in the near future, we think in, in maybe three to five years, that could change. Right. And that's no time at all. No. Right? Um, no. It, it, it takes time to develop your quantum muscle, if you will, like to understand how quantum computers work and, and how, how it applies to your industry and to hire the, ex, the, the experts to do this for you. And so if I told you in three years, people will be taking advantage of this, you should probably start if you haven't already mm, to think about it. I would like to elaborate a bit on this next section. I mentioned an article written by Mark in 2017. Back then, he proposed six areas for which quantum computers would be very useful. This included artificial intelligence, molecular modeling, cryptography, financial modeling, weather forecasting, and particle physics. I'm attaching a link to this article in the text describing this episode for the interested listener. I also asked Mark if he believes these same six areas still applies today. How far 
this work has come and whether there are any other areas that he would like to add to the list of quantum computing applications he thinks we will see in the near future. Yeah, Yeah. so so thanks for asking. And, and that's actually uh, uh, nostalgic for me. Um, I had forgotten I had written that article five years ago, almost six years ago. No, it's, it's incredible. So in 2017, we had only scratched the surface. Um, we, we'd only just started to actually build these computers. And so in, in almost six years now, we've not only started to do all those things, um, we're, we, we understand them quite a bit better. Yeah, no, that that's actually very accurate still, mm. all of those types of applications. And, and we've already started taking the first steps in each of those areas. You have, so, so I was wondering in particular, with regard to AI, so how, how do you, how would you implement or use quantum computing sure. in AI, with AI? So AI is sort of the um, application version of machine learning. Um, so we, we think of AI because it's sort of in, in the popular culture, but it's based on machine learning, which is really just instructions for teaching a computer to recognize patterns. So it's really about pattern recognition. And so machine learning is now a very standard tool that a lot of industries use, and, and sometimes we don't even realize it. There is now a field called quantum machine learning. Mm. And quantum machine learning is based on completely different mathematics from normal machine learning. And, and if, if that seems strange, mm. so, so go back to um, the difference between bits and qubits. So bits, again, um, are only zero and ones, right? That there's this binary behavior, but the qubits can be anywhere in between. And so there's a lot more shades of gray, if you will. There's, there's a lot more subtlety and nuance in that. And so the mathematics behind it is completely different. Classical machine learning, so when you use normal computers to do this, it's based on probabilities. And in quantum machine learning, we use something called an amplitude, which you can think of as, as like a vector. It's like it's pointing in space, it has a direction. And the important distinction is that if you have two arrows, two vectors, which are opposite pointing, they cancel each other out. So even though by themselves neither is zero, added together you get zero. Hmm. And so the mathematics is, is much more intricate, and so it should be able to detect patterns that would have been completely missed using normal machine learning. Wow. And so people are already working very hard on this. Um, so so to, to give you a few examples, hmm. financial modeling. So when a financial institution is looking to you know, figure out the, the fair price of some sort of commodity, they use machine learning. So they look at past patterns and try to figure out what the, the price at some future date will be. And so they are already starting to use quantum machine learning to look at these patterns and wow. see if they could detect something. And so, so that's, that's just one example. And so, um, so yes, at some point in the future, there will be a quantum version of AI based on this quantum machine learning. Wow. And do you think that will be like, like in two years, three years? Are we talking I, I about think, I, I think, yeah, three to five years. Um, okay. That might be a little optimistic, but just to mention our case in particular, mm-hmm. we've increased the, the performance of our quantum computer by a factor of 10 every year mm. for the past several years. And we think that we will continue on that trajectory. So, so Moore's Law has doubled the performance of, of classical computers every 18 months or so, right? And so look, look how much progress we've made mm-hmm. using normal computers. So if we can continue on this factor of 10 increase, that means in three years, they'll be a thousand times more powerful than what they are today. So even if today it doesn't seem like there is any real performance advantage, in three years, it, it will be a completely different game. Wow. 
And so, um, so it really is a very exciting time. So you talked earlier about that there are a few algorithms that you identified and that you're using today. Is there a way that um, more theoretical physics now can inform kind of uh, com- uh, quantum computing? Uh, and in what ways do we need, like, what do you need in order to identify more sure. algorithms? So I'm just wondering, like, what Sure. What so, so, um, so, so, there's, so there's two directions to your question. So mm-hmm. one way is, could we use quantum computing to help with particle physics? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes, because particle physics by its nature is quantum. Mm. And so now that we have a quantum computer, we hope to be able to do more accurate quantum simulations of Mm. particle physics. The the reverse direction is could we use particle physics to to inform on quantum computing? So there's actually one thing which I'm already aware of, um, and and there's probably more, but just one that I'm I'm aware of. Um, And and the reason I'm interested is because it actually comes from my background in string theory. Mm. And it's something called holography. And, it, and, and when I say that, you and, and some of the listeners might think of like, like holograms. holograms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like stickers yeah. we got as kids yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. So, there's, so it's not quite that tight, but there's a reason we call it that. Mm. And it's this idea from theoretical physics that the universe might be a hologram. Mm. And I know that sounds crazy, but there's actually very good reasons to think that even though we have grown up our whole lives seeing that the world apparently is th- has three spatial dimensions, that might be a big lie. It might be that the universe tricks us into thinking that, but it actually only uses two dimensions. The universe. It, the, the entire universe might exist only on two dimensions. And it's just a very persistent wow. prejudice that we have that we live in three dimensions. Due to the... F- to our biological and if we, and well, we know we, we don't know why, but but it turns out that all the information in these three dimensions can be cleverly encoded using only two dimensions. It's not obvious how this is done, mm. but but several years ago, some very smart people pointed out that this does happen. We don't understand how or why, mm. but all the information that we see can be put on only two dimensions, right. and so th- the term for this is holography, because it's sort of like a hologram where it. It looks three-dimensional, but it's in fact only two-dimensional, and and this this is closely connected with string theory. In what ways? <laughs> In um, what way? <laughs> sure, sure. I don't I don't want to get too deep into this no, because uh, we could we could really talk curious. for days on this. Yeah. But um, but so there there was this was originally pointed out by a brilliant Dutch physicist named Gerard de Tooft, who won the Nobel Prize, and he pointed out using arguments from black holes that that the universe did this, and 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 again he didn't know how or why. But he made a very persuasive argument that this happens and that any fundamental theory of quantum gravity would have to reflect this. And very soon after this, uh, another brilliant physicist named Juan Maldacena, he found an example of this in string theory. And he, he was able to, I'm going to say build black holes, but I mean mm. theoretically build black holes. Mm. I don't mean he actually made one in a laboratory. But he showed that by mathematically modeling black holes in five dimensions, it was mathematically equivalent to pure quantum field theory without black holes or gravity in only four dimensions. And so there was this dimensional reduction. Wow. And th- this this revolutionized the field. It was absolutely amazing. And, and if the listener is curious, uh, the, the technical name for this is ADS-CFT. And, and so if you mm. Google that, you'll find a lot more information. Mm. So this is, this is a very exciting thing in, in theoretical physics. 
And the reason I'm mentioning it here in the context of quantum computing is because in quantum computing, these qubits are very fragile, right? These are physical objects and they still have a propensity to have an error introduced. And that means that your program gets spoiled, right? It, it just will give the wrong answer. And what can cause that error? I, any, any disturbance from the outside environment, um, just some measurement error. So there, there's a million things that could cause it. And we've gotten really good at reducing the error, but, but it still happens, mm. right? And so, um, so right now, this is a big issue, is, is that we have to keep the programs pretty short. And um, these quantum errors still pop in. And what we would like to do is something called quantum error correction. And that means that even if one qubit fails, that's okay. The others can recover because the, the quantum information is spread out over several qubits. So it's sort of like if, if you and several friends are rock climbing and one of you falls, that's okay because you're all tethered together. So th there, there's a recovery. And so... Since so you would save that person. So you could save that person, precisely. Yes. And so it's it similarly with qubits. You, you take the information of one qubit and you spread it over several qubits. So if one qubit fails, that's okay because the information is still there in a, in a complicated mm. form. So the connection between these two ideas, the holography mm. and the quantum error correction, is that how is quantum information stored? This is suddenly an important issue. How do you smear this quantum information over several qubits and how do you recover it? Well, maybe the universe knows better than we do because it's cleverly encoding all this quantum information in some clever way. Mm. So maybe there's a connection between those two ideas. So, um, so that, that's something that maybe particle physics could, right. could help us. And so if it's possible to create an algorithm that would, in a way, simplify like the parameters and, and make it, for instance, like, like going from three dimensions to two, you could actually solve problems easier. Exactly. So, so it's, it's kind of in, in, in string theory and such, this is this mm. is what we we do sometimes using this this idea of holography. Um, but the, the the amazing thing in quantum computing is that it might have a very practical application with quantum error correction. Yeah. So so we can identify an error and fix it so that it doesn't spoil your program. And so it, it, it's one of the things that I love most about physics is that something can appear to be purely theoretical and then just a few years later, someone will find a practical application for it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why it's so important to do all this work now, even if it, mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't know how to solve it, you don't exactly know what problems it will solve uh, and, uh, and you don't know how the problems will be solved really but still, you have to work on it. Exactly. There's yeah. a there's a famous story which might be apocryphal. Um, it's usually attributed to Maxwell that when Maxwell first discovered these electromagnetic waves and was researching them, he was called before the British Parliament, who asked him, "Well, why why should we be funding something so useless as electromagnetic waves?" And Maxwell replied, "Well, I don't know what the application is." but I'm sure that my grandchildren will find an application and I'm sure that your grandchildren will tax it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, that's amazing. Uh, always when I, uh, when I see these pictures and you sent me one picture once like this of this massive complex uh, that hosts like these machineries, quantum machineries, and it just looks very expensive. 
it is expensive. I, and yes, so we that have these really expensive complexes and these machines and, uh, and a lot of effort put into it. And uh, we don't know exactly how we're going to use it. We know it will be applicable in different ways, but not exactly how and how much. And I'm wondering, like, who are paying for this party? And then, like, who are the stakeholders and who are funding this uh, like entire enterprise? And and whether it's mostly private or are governments involved? Uh, and uh, what does it take to really fund the developments that are necessary to actually get where we need to go? Yeah, all of the uh, the stakeholders that you just mentioned are involved. So it is true that governments are involved, um, both from a desire to create technology and industry. Um, part of it is national defense and security. So I, I earlier referenced the fact that we we do already have a quantum algorithm which could defeat a lot of popular forms of encryption. Um, not today, we don't think, but, but at some point in the future. And so there are government agencies who are concerned about this. So, so actually, to answer your question, let me go back just a little bit. The idea of quantum computing is about 40 years old. So it was in the early 80s that this physicist, Richard Feynman, pointed out that a quantum computer would be able to do things and and solve problems that that would not be possible by classical computers. And that was a great idea, but back then we didn't know how to actually build one. And so there was academic progress for about 30 years. And apparently there was a joke that quantum computers are just 10 years away. For 30 years <laughs> and and so so there was progress made certainly yeah. but um but no private sector was willing to invest in this and then it was around 2012 about, about 10 years ago that that certain developments happened and so then oh it was so recent people real yeah, yeah. It, was, it was very recent people realized this might actually be feasible and that was the very beginning of of the private quantum computing sector and so several companies like Honeywell and Google and IBM and Microsoft started groups. There were some startups created. And um, and so, as I mentioned, I, I got into it just a few years after that. And I think at the time there were maybe 10 serious quantum groups in the, in the private sector. There are now over 400, I think I heard, um, at a recent conference, uh, wow. a, a person in the consulting industry showed a, a map and there were over 400, and of course I don't know all the names anymore, but the fact that it's grown so rapidly um, is is really incredible. And so now, yes, the governments are continuing to support it, and the support is measured in the billions now. There are many private investors willing to back this, Um, so so VC funds and and seed investors and such. There are many companies who are doing projects, like proof-of-concept type projects. So, So again, they won't have a commercial advantage tomorrow, but they're willing to invest in it because in a few years, they'll be in a good position to take advantage of it. Um, so, so yeah, so this is where all the money is coming from right now. Yeah, it's fascinating. And also, when you say 400 groups, are we talking labs? Are we talking research labs? Are we talking like uh, think tanks or what? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are different specialties now. Um, so there are some doing hardware, but hardware is very expensive. and And so... That's, there's probably fewer of them, right? Um, many of them are doing software because that's cheaper to, to do. It's always cheaper to do software, of course. And there are different specializations within software. So some are focused on machine learning, some are focused on chemistry, some on cybersecurity, mm. and, and, and so forth. Um, 
And so, yeah, we're, the fact that we're already seeing specializations within quantum computing mm. is amazing. So do you think like in the future that quantum computers will be something that everyone has? In their, like it, computers is something that will be available to regular households or that we will have it somehow make it as tiny as uh, something we can put in our pockets or in a regular computer. What do you think it will look like so in I think, the future? So, so there's, there's two parts to, to that answer. So the first part is, do I think that the average person will be using a quantum computer? And the answer is absolutely yes, but they hmm. won't realize it. So, so if, you, if, you, if you ask uh, like a, a search engine or something, like how do I get from A to B? That might be a problem that they it sends to a quantum computer and then sends you the results. Mm. So you've used a quantum computer without even realizing it, and so mm. so the interface will be identical mm. um, on your on your phone or whatever. Mm. Um, but you wouldn't actually need the hardware. But you don't need the hardware exactly. You just you, ex exactly mm. Mm. Um, just like you don't need to have a supercomputer in your living room to to ask how do I get. To directions to the nearest restaurant or something. It just sends it, it, just does it. Over, over the cloud. Um, but, but the second part to your question, do I think a quantum computer could be miniaturized so much that you, you actually um, have one on your phone or your laptop? Um, it, it is possible in a few years. So that's where it's going. There are certain technologies that do lend themselves very well to that miniaturization. Wow. Um, so, so, one, so, so one is ion trap technology, which is the one that Quantinium is using. Mm. One is photonic, and, the, and there are companies using that approach. Mm. Um, the superconducting approach, using the chandeliers and such, does not lend itself mm. well to that because you need this liquid helium to keep it so cold. Mm. And so unless you want to have a, a tub of liquid helium with you, 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 you probably <laughs> won't it, carry it, one around with you. Exactly. But well, what's the main difference between that chandelier kind of... Uh, the, yeah. and, and, and the ion, and the ion trap? Sure. So, so the, the superconducting approach, the advantage is that the operations are very fast in nanoseconds. So, so the operations happen in billionths of a second. We know that it works. Um, so, so it's already proven to work very well. And actually, you can get a, a quite a large number of qubits. So there's already hundreds of qubits. Hmm. Um, so, so at present, uh, IBM has a 433 qubit machine. Wow. Does that mean in computing power? So, so every qubit gives you double the number of configurations. Mm -hmm. um, so it's 2 to the 433rd power, which is an inconceivably large number <laughs> for humans. Wow. Because 2 to the 30 is a billion. So it's, it's like a billion times many. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's so big. But as I said, these qubits have errors. So that, that severely diminishes how much we can actually access. Yeah. But, but the fact that they've already done that and built a machine that does that is amazing. Um, the disadvantage of superconducting is that the qubits are very fragile, and so they don't last very long in their special quantum state. And, and so you have to do all the calculations very quickly before this, we call it because the, co it, the coherence it time. Because it, 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 the, the quantum properties disappear. Right. Exactly, yeah. Wow. So, so you have to, but if you take it out on the machine, the information or the calculations, and you then, but if you do not, then you might lose it. Is that what you're saying, like, in a way? So, so even keeping it all within the machine, so mm -hmm. what happens is that you have these qubits, and you initialize them into, mm -hmm. into a certain configuration in the beginning. Then you do all these operations to put them in the superposition and entangled states. 
and then you measure them. But you have to do that very quickly. Mm. So you have, you have to run your program and get everything done very quickly before the qubits decohere. That means so lose their special quantum properties. That, because then it just becomes like a normal computer. Right. And, and then you don't, take, you don't have the advantages of, of mm. quantum anymore. And so that, on a superconducting machine, that happens relatively quickly. And so that, that's a disadvantage. Um, and then another disadvantage is that the qubits are physically locked in. So, so one qubit might be connected with two or three other qubits, but that's it. Mm. So they're, they're physically locked in. Mm. Now, in contrast, the ion chop technology mm. that we use, the advantage is that the, the qubits are ions which physically move around. So every qubit can actually interact with every other qubit. And so that's, that's a big advantage. Another advantage is that the, the coherence time, the time that it retains its special quantum properties, is much longer many orders of magnitude longer. So that's good. But the disadvantage mm. is that the operations take longer. So it's not as fast. And so, so it's not as fast. And another advantage is that we don't have to keep it so cold. Oh, um, right. Yeah, yeah. with the superconducting, you have to have this liquid helium. Mm. You have to have this, all this infrastructure around. Mm. Whereas with, with the ion trap machine, you have to build vacuum chambers and, and such. Mm. It's, it's still specialized equipment. But you don't need to have liquid helium no, tubs around no. and so um so it's it's easier to construct e- easier maybe but but they're still they're both very difficult and both yeah. very expensive <laughs> and and require you know in- incredibly talented people to mm. to build them mm. um but but both have advantages and disadvantages yes. and so there's no obvious winner yet and mm. so it's very fortunate we have several groups exploring many different technologies yeah and it's interesting that it's to such different technologies it, in, in, in a way and not closing down either of them pre- precisely keeping it open because maybe we need some one for one problem and another for another pre- precisely yeah. yeah it may very well be that, yeah. that one technology lends itself well to one type of problem and another to another and it, it's great that we have so many different avenues to quantum computing that we're not locked in to just one so so you know i've, I've we've kind of focused on two in this yeah. conversation but there are many, there are many, many more. Oh. Um, we, we've spent hours talking about all of these. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but, but yes, fortunately, quantum computing can be implemented using many different technologies. It's fascinating. I don't know if you identify with this, but for you, for me at least, you appear to have like this crucial job as a translator in making quantum theory and computing accessible for people like me and and, and for people across fields, really. And I was wondering, your what is your professional opinion with regards to how society can better prepare for the next chapter of quantum computers and what we what do we need? Like, how about, like, what should IT um, professionals and engineers do? How should we uh, think about it with regards to legal implications and, and just to societal structures around it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, well first thank you for the kind words um since you mentioned the legal implications it was actually about six months ago i i co-authored an article about the legal implications of quantum computing um, with our with our general counsel um so so i would defer to that article i i actually forget all the things i wrote but there will be many legal implications you will find a link to this article in the description of this podcast episode 
In this article, Mark and his colleague Kanya Konkoli-Thieg emphasized the need to consider legal aspects related to areas such as intellectual property, natural language processing, cybersecurity, and national defense. But there will probably be many other areas. Like with any new technology, there is a need for discussions about legal standards and governing principles. With several hundred quantum startups, over 50,000 quantum-related patents filed in the past five years, and an exponential growth in research and development of quantum computing hardware and software, the legal implications will be numerous. At the same time, the legal industry has an opportunity to prepare for this now, before the quantum field is commercialized. There are many legal implications because... There are many um, national security implications because of this. Being able to solve problems that we couldn't have solved before always has implications legally um, because we can we can do things for good or we can do things for bad and, and there have to be decisions and, and guidelines on all of these. In regard to what an IT professional could do, I, I, I would suggest that they simply uh, just try to learn more about what quantum is. Um, there, there's lots of great material on the internet about this about what quantum computers are and and such. If you are a company and you are concerned about how quantum computing could affect you, I I would suggest, I guess, that you just get in touch with me and I'd be glad to to (laughs) discuss it with you. Um, One thing that I often hear from companies is that they they still think that quantum is too far off. Like, we're, we're aware of quantum, but... We, we don't think it will affect us anytime soon, and so we, we're, we're not going to tune in right now. And the problem with that is that if you're not paying attention, how will you know when it is right to, to get into quantum? Um, even if tomorrow we magically had a very powerful quantum computer, it would still take us about two years to write the software to run on it, right, mm-hmm. to use it. And so it is not too early at all to understand how quantum is going to affect your industry. Mm. And so I would encourage you to at least do like a proof of concept type project and learn how quantum is going to affect your your industry, work out a simple problem, educate your staff, Mm. hire more staff if necessary, Mm. um, all of these things so that you'll be in a good position to take advantage of it when it is time. Mm. What can we do with regards to um, educational uh, choices and curriculum and do we need to reform our physics education in uh, and stuff like that there are are there already are, yeah, are people there, already there are, doing this yeah, they, they are they are in, yeah. in fact so there's there's a whole formal academic field now called quantum information science and so that means that's quantum computing and quantum sensors and and all of these things that are related and so some universities have degrees in this. So you can, you can actually get a degree in quantum information science. Some have certificates, some have courses, um, some you can just take you know physics, you can take computer science, you can take engineering courses and, and kind of cobble it together. Um, but there, there are, this is a field now. People mm-hmm. actually can do this and they can get jobs in this. Right. And, and this is just in the past few years. And um, even young people now can actually program quantum computers. There are some platforms that you can access online. You can actually use a quantum computer for free. You can start writing code and start using it. And there are many open source tools 
which allow you to, to, to write quite sophisticated quantum programs. Um, mm. so, so I might mention that we've developed a tool called Ticket, T-K-E-T, which allows you to develop quantum software and efficiently run it on any quantum hardware. Wow. And it will automatically figure out the most efficient way to do that, and, th and it's open source. Mm. So it's not only free, but every line of code is available and online, and you can see exactly how we did it. Mm. And so this is a tool that anyone can use for whatever purpose. Right. But what about lower level education, like elementary school, like high school? Is the physic curriculum that we're teaching today up to date? It, it, or do we, do we need to have more focus on how to combine it with applied sciences like this? Uh, I, yes, I, I think so, because there, I, I have actually seen high school students program quantum computers. In fact, about two years ago, when I was in Portland, Oregon, my hometown, there was a, a local high school student who won an award programming a quantum computer. And so it, so it is possible, but, but it's probably just not part of the mainstream curriculum. No, it shouldn't be more complicated than, than theoretical physics, right? So, so programming quantum computing, it's, it's a funny thing because you're actually programming using quantum physics. And so you need to have some understanding of how that works. Mm. And, and that's, that's a problem we have because that's a big barrier. It takes, it takes time to learn that. Normal programming isn't that difficult to learn. Mm. Um, I, I know that sounds a, a little bit mm. chauvinistic, mm. But, but someone with some technical ability, if they take one of these, these like data science boot camps, you know, they can mm. learn how to program Python or what have you mm. pretty quickly. And, and I have seen even elementary school kids know how to program. So I remember as, a, as an elementary school student learning basic and programming a, a mm. computer in my classroom. And so that's not so difficult, but in, in quantum computing, you actually have to kind of think like a quantum physicist. It's very counterintuitive. And that, that's a big problem we have right now. It, it's a bit like in the, in the 50s and 60s, I, I kind of mentioned our machines still kind of look like that. Programming is still kind of like that because back then it was engineers using punch cards programming in machine language yeah like like you had to actually program using binary and, and be an engineer yes. and things like that and now computers have come so far you don't have to do that and so hopefully in a few years it'll be much more user-friendly and people can program quantum computers without having a degree in quantum physics right. um, but, but today you but don't... today today th there is a bit of a barrier yeah this is a, like a silly one but if you had unlimited funds how would you escalate the field on quantum computing now, or would you do that, uh, or would you do something else? Oh, I would absolutely invest in quantum computing. You would? Yeah, absolutely. This will be a huge technological revolution, mm. and I think most people don't realize how big it will be. And what areas would you invest in, more specifically? I would probably just continue to invest in, in the hardware, in the we're making amazing progress, and in the software, because we're still in the very basic stages of quantum algorithms and such. So I, I would just invest in what we're doing now. Yeah. So, and I was wondering, you had such an interesting career, and I also find it fascinating how you apply your skill sets into theoretical sciences. And um, every time I talk to someone who is very accomplished uh, like this, I also wonder who their inspirations are. Could I ask you who your biggest inspiration is, like, or if you have several people and why? So, so thank you. Uh, I suppose one main inspiration was my PhD advisor, Brian Green, who, who 
some of the listeners might recognize uh, as, as a great popularizer of superstring theory and other ideas in physics. And one thing that I really admire about Brian is that he, he was a very accomplished researcher, but then he chose to devote a large part of his career to popularizing it. And, and so he's written several books, uh, so, so like The Elegant Universe and The Fabric of the Cosmos and such. He started the World Science Festival along with his wife, Tracy Day. He, he's done so much to, to popularize science and bring it into the popular culture. And I really admire that. And so, um, so, so that's one, one inspiration I can mm. point to, yes. And do you have any recommendations for like a reading list or any uh, suggestions for how to read up on some of the quantum theory sure. theoretical work that you've been working on? So, so um, there, there's a great blog. Um, there are several great blogs. Uh, mm. the, the Quantum Computing Report, the Quantum Daily. Uh, Scott Aronson has a, has a great more technical blog. He's a professor at UT Austin. There are a few great books. Um, so one... Uh, by Bob Suter, one by Robert Lurido. There are not a lot of books about quantum computing because it's so new. And mm-hmm. so if, if one were to write a book about the, like, the business aspects of it, it would be obsolete in six months. Mm-hmm. And so, so yes, there, there are some great kind of technical introductory books like the ones I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the, the business aspect of it is changing so quickly that no one, no one would have written a book today. No. Um, like... I, 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 will, I will mention, um, and this is actually very new, is that our chief scientist, Bob Cook, has um, just written a book. I think it was actually published today. Oh, I think wow. it's pub- publicly available. And it's about quantum computing, and it actually aims to popularize it and aims to remove the, the more technical aspect with the equations and such. And, oh. and so we're actually, we're aiming it at high school education, kind of circling back to your your, yeah, your earlier comment and yeah. so um so that's that's actually a book that i could recommend um Wonderful. yeah Qu- quantum in pictures quantum and, in pictures wow and so there, there's an alternative approach um which is more pictorial and so um so i would encourage you to uh, to check that out yes that's uh, fascinating i didn't ask you about that i was actually wondering about uh quantum um computing and a more like categorical theory and, and it, stuff it, like it is Precisely that. Mm. Yeah, category mm. theory. Yeah. Okay. Well, next time. In the book Quantum in Pictures, Quantinium's chief scientist, Professor Bob Cook, and Dr. Stefano Gogioso at Oxford University use accessible visualizations to explain complex quantum processes in a way that makes quantum physics and quantum computing more available to those of us who do not have a background in mathematics or physics. I highly recommend this book. And we'll leave a link in the episode description. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about is um, sometimes when you talk to people who are really passionate uh, and they, they're really into their work, they spend a lot of time doing it, and it seems like that is their life. And, but I, it, I always wonder when I talk to them and meet them, is this the meaning of life for you? So what, like, what is the meaning of life for you? I don't know the meaning of life, but I, and, and if and if someone has figured it out, yeah. I, I would be a little suspicious. But if they, if they claim they figured it out, I would be suspicious. But whatever the meaning of life or the universe is, I think understanding how the universe works is high up on that list. I think that we are meant to understand how the universe works, and and this is why I became a physicist. Yeah, that's a great answer. Hmm. Well. Uh, 
With that, I would like to thank you so much for agreeing to uh, talk to me and have this conversation. And um, it was enlightening. <laughs> it's my, my pleasure, Imak. <laughs> yeah, in, uh, any time. And, and again, I'm honored to be your first guest. And I wish you much success with your podcast. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this very first episode of the Chameleons podcast. Following the interview, I taught a lot about what implications expected future developments in quantum computing might have on a societal level. As Mark and his colleagues emphasize, quantum computers will not replace classical computers, but they will probably be more suitable for solving certain complex problems. So we need to think about what this means for us. In next week's episode, with Ina von Turov, one of Norway's first quantum community builders and an affiliate of the think tank One Quantum, we will talk more about this and about how to make quantum physics and quantum technology more accessible to the public and why this is so important right now. The interview with Ina will be in Norwegian as she wanted to address Norwegian stakeholders and policymakers to pay more attention to what she deeply believes will be world-changing technology. I am your host, Imak Sambrana. Thank you for listening in.